0: Good evening. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, please thank our actors uh, once again, and director Ann Chicolella, and, uh, and, and Robert Mayhew for editing the scenes that we uh, just witnessed. Uh, welcome. My name is Caleb Brown. I'm the director of multimedia here at the Cato Institute, where I host the Cato Daily Podcast, among other uh, multimedia products. Uh, I read Ayn Rand in high school and the themes there are especially impactful for someone who, who is about to become an adult. Uh, the idea of complete self-ownership, romantic individualism, the unique satisfaction that comes with living a life on your terms, and uh, the evisceration of the idea that you should apologize for your talents. Uh, they're especially powerful thoughts uh, for young people. Those ideas have definitely stayed with me uh, as they have for millions of other people. Uh, The themes that Rand brings out in sharp detail in her work go to the core of the human experience, and since the advances of the 20th century have brought so much wealth to people all around the world, a life that is lived for one's own satisfaction truly has become uh, more possible for millions upon millions of people. And there's no question that her stark statements about individuality have truly become a part of popular culture, and whether she would like it or not, those ideas have been appropriated by We the Living Uh, to create great stories about people who want to live for themselves. Uh, Who can forget the story of the greatest heroes of the world disappearing one by one after they realize that the world around them does not want the full expression of their talents, uh, but the heroes triumph when that world finally welcomes them back. I refer of course to 2004's The Incredibles, uh, written and directed by Brad Bird. Um, And to say nothing of the young iconoclast who Uh, instead of drearily serving his collective, strikes out on his own, creates revelatory new work, rises to the top of his field, is hated for his talent, is forced to work in obscurity for a lesser talent, and then, of course, finds himself at war with a newspaper columnist. The artist asserts his right to pursue his own path on his own terms, and, as importantly, to be recognized for his talent." The eventual showdown ends with exactly that recognition in the form of a spirited public defense of the artist's genius by that very critic. I refer, of course, to 2007's Ratatouille. <laughs> Not coincidentally, also written and directed by Brad Bird, it's also hands down my favorite all-time movie, I, and I always cry just a little bit or more at the end. Now, uh, Atlas Shrugged peaked at number three on the New York Times bestseller list in 1957, uh, but during a financial crisis capped by a recession that I think we're out of, uh, the book hit number one on Amazon's fiction and literature and was welcomed back as, well, certainly not escapism, but uh, quite possibly disaster porn. Um, Now, in 2017, with the rise of anti-individualist populism around the globe, maybe it's time for We the Living to have a moment. I humbly submit that it is the best written novel by Ayn Rand and I'll say this in all honestly, it's the only book by her that I recommend without reservation. Uh, we're joined tonight to discuss what you've just seen um, and discuss some of the, uh, the themes of, of Rand's work, uh, in the con- putting some of that into the context of today. Uh, to my left, Ankar Gatte is a senior fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. He is the Institute's resident expert on objectivism and serves as its senior trainer and editor. Uh, To his right, Sarah Squire is a senior fellow at Liberty Fund. She's also literary editor of the Foundation for Economic Education's Fee.org. What I enjoy about Sarah is her ability to reach back into the worlds created in fictional works of the past and give her audience a clear picture of history and culture. She's also a semi-regular guest of the Cato Daily Podcast. And uh, to her right is Kathy Young. She is a Newsday and Reason columnist. She is the author of Growing Up in Moscow, which she did exactly that until, I believe, the age of 17, something like that. Uh, We may not have time for Q&A, but we'll get to the conversation right away. Um, We the Living is Ayn Rand's first novel. What, What was missing from that novel in terms of the full expression of her idea about the world and philosophy in fiction?
1: Um, I mean, I think a lot is missing. So it's it's her first, uh, no, as you say, it's her first novel. She's not yet formed her whole philosophy. Her whole goal as a literary artist was to portray what she said as an ideal man. And we living the hero is Kira. And it, you're, so she, she thought she herself thought I'm not yet ready to express my full ideas in We the Living. It's really the Fountainhead is the first expression, and she regarded it as the first expression of her ideal man. And it's much more um, the, the moral perspective and what egoism really means. You get a flavor of it in We the Living, but you get you don't get you get Kira undeveloped. It's I mean the, the title for the book before it became We the Living, was airtight, and it's about how a totalitarian system strangles the individual. In The Fountainhead, you get an individual living, and you get horror portrayal of what it really means to live if you're free to live, and you get, I think what you get in The Fountainhead is a moral ideal of egoism, of what selfishness, what it really means, that it doesn't mean the caricatures that exist today, that it's exploiting others, that it's you lie, cheat, steal, and murder, you get a portrait of selfishness as a complete independence from other people. And so, it, and then when you get to Atlas Shrugged, there's a whole slew of deeper philosophical ideas. So it's a first expression, but I think there's many, many ideas of the mature Ayn Rand that are at most in We the Living in nascent form.
0: Uh, Sarah, to you, uh, Ayn Rand was a part of a tradition, uh, but of writers who talked about the individual fighting sure. something, but it seemed that Rand put around that uh, a, a, she made it a moral thing, it seemed, in a, in a way that I don't, I don't know that other authors did, but perhaps you can correct me.
2: Yeah, Rand has. I'm hesitant with with Kathy here. I'm hesitant to call it an advantage of the Soviet context because boy, does that sound wrong. But well, she she has she has what I think of for someone who wants to make points about uh, the the importance of the struggle of the individual against this totalitarian state and of the individual against a, a, an all-encompassing. Um, state order she has the advantage of having that context to work from that kind of that kind of totalitarianizing state doesn't exist in the same way prior to the 20th century I mean you get you know you get some hints of it when Henry VIII really gets rolling Right, you get some hints of this in the Renaissance, when the Stuarts or when the when the French kings before the Revolution really kind of get moving on the absolutist power stuff. You get hints of it, but it's never it doesn't totalize in the same it's way. It's not the same kind of control over private life. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so there are yeah. they're trying they're trying very very hard to get there, but right. nobody's as in, good in at it. In the medieval church, right. I think, you can also kind. Yeah. Of
3: draw certain parallels. Uh, As far as, uh, you know, the advantage of growing up in the Soviet Union, I actually think in a way it is an advantage if you manage to get out in time, you know, because then you have that experience of, you know, what totalitarianism means and, you know, what collectivism means, and it does really give you a very useful perspective, but, you know, getting out in time is really important, and, you know, Rand did that and you know I, I did at a somewhat earlier age than she did and in a very different time but
0: uh, so Kathy, to you what what in this specific work speaks to you the most
3: well um i actually agree with you that in some ways it is rand's best work and i'm gonna be kind of the heretic here and say that in some ways what's missing from it is what makes it better because oh, I, was I think the same thing. because I think that you know ideology and art are kind of you know in conflict with each other and you know once Ayn Rand had this completely solidified kind of ideology where she was writing. Really, as a vehicle for a message. Um, I mean, I think there are really. I I, I really. I I love the Fountainhead. I I think it is. It is a great novel. But even there, you sort of start seeing a little too much of the message novel, and you, you can see sort of the supporting characters. Kind of turning into caricatures in a way, and I think that is, you know, that kind of reaches its pinnacle in a way in Atlas Shrugged, where you know there's a really there's an incredibly black and white kind of polarization of the good guys and the bad guys, and you know, the bad guys are really kind of dehumanized. Uh, with A Living, I mean, it, it, I think it's also different because it was based on a very personal experience for Rand, and you know, just as a side note for me. It's it's really interesting because the world that she's writing about, you know, the Soviet Union in the 1920s. This is what I heard stories about from my grandmother, you know, who was exactly the same age as Rand, by the way, and had some of the same problems of, you know, her father was a landowner. And uh, you know, interestingly enough, by the way, her like her great grandfather was a peasant who actually managed to rise in the world and you know yeah. become a landowner. And then you know his son was penalized for that after the revolution. And my grandmother was exactly in the same position where she wasn't able to get into a decent college because she was of the wrong you know social position as the daughter of someone who had been rich before the revolution. So this has a lot of uh, like really personal. Um, personal aspects for me in that, you know, this is a world that I heard a lot about. Um, and, uh, you know, it's very recognizable to me, like some of the popular songs that, uh, the, that it mentions. And, I mean, I know the actual lyrics to those. Uh, so this is, um, and I think she, she really does in this novel paint a very, very vivid and kind of, uh, you know, full three-dimensional picture of that world. and. Um, I, I think she really had. Uh, I mean, I, I know that a lot of people kind of disparage her as a novelist. And I mean, I think her the problems to me, you know, and I do see those problems of... You know, her, Ayn Rand is a novelist and Atlas Shrugged are not because of lack of ability. I think it's because by that point, the philosopher and her kind of overwhelmed the artist, basically. And in With a Living, you really see a wonderfully vivid picture of, of this world that she's, uh, that she's depicting.
2: Yeah, there's a, there's a great moment in the novel. You guys remember when she and, I can't remember whether it's she and Andre or she and Leo, are going to the movies. Right, and they're trying to decide oh, which movie right, to see. And right. there's a yes. there's an imported movie from from uh, Europe from outside the the, the Soviet well, possibly Union. Possibly in America right, or maybe in Where, where they recut it. Right, and the, right? then there's and then there's a Soviet film, and nobody wants to go see the Soviet film, right? So the theater with the with the foreign movie is like packed to the gills, and and they're complaining about this Soviet movie that they're gonna have to go see, right? And I think ironically some of the issues with Rand's later fiction come from trying to do the same sort of, in the didactic instruction that, right. that's done in those Soviet films, right? And that there's a, because the goal is, the goal is to, to teach the philosophy, right. is the primary goal, and the story is secondary or even sometimes tertiary I I to that, you know? I think
1: of it as the goals to teach the philosophy, but it is to dramatize the philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I think in a way, then you could not, no author could do what Ayn Rand is trying to do. Right. So she's not conventional. She doesn't share at all the moral views that most people in the society have. So can you write a novel where you have a Howard Rourke or John Galt who are challenging everything in the society, and yet they don't explain why? So they don't, give, they don't give their different ideas. They don't give their different philosophy. The story doesn't contain that. The story would be unintelligible. So if you think of it from her perspective, it's I either would have to write conventional stories containing conventional philosophy and conventional morality, or I have to throw away my pen. But her view is, no, I'm going to do and I'm going to put and the ideas are going to be embedded in the story, but the, the story's going to dramatize those ideas. And I think, I mean, that's why the Soviet film, I mean, to give the example, the Soviet films, nobody goes to see millions of people buy Ayn Rand's but, The Fountainhead and, yeah. Astra. and that's because yeah. the no, ideas are dramatized. Yeah. And they're new ideas. So this the book has to be chock full of discussion and speeches and so on. But I think they're very
0: skillfully integrated
1: into the story.
0: Uh, a question to you, Ankar. The, there was a film of We the Living produced in, was it 1947? Uh, no, actually, do
3: you mean the Italians? At The film? Italian. Yeah. No, that was actually 36, I think. 47. I think it was okay. in
0: the 1930s. I think it's 40. It's no,
3: really? Thirty? Really?
0: But Whenever it was produced. No, it was well, definitely
3: not 47, because it was okay. before right. the end of the sure, war. Sure, sure. So so, it was under well, the Mussolini regime.
0: But, so, yeah. Do you have a, have a clear idea of what was the purpose of that film? It's my understanding that it was portrayed as an anti-communist yes. film. Right. <laughs> Right. And not uh, simply as anti-totalitarian. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, that's the stories. I don't know if they're completely accurate, but the stories were that, yes, this is anti-communist, and so I mean pro-fascist, it's probably how they thought. <laughs> that, and naturally was, that's
0: the only other option. Yeah, <laughs>
1: right. And, it, and then it was the reaction it got was people grasped that it's anti-statism and it's equally critical of the Italian system, and then was banned because of that. Um, but it, I haven't been able to confirm that that is, but that's yeah, the story. I don't
3: know if it, I mean, that's the story that I heard also. I don't think it's ever been confirmed that it was actually banned. I think it, you know, I mean, eventually it sort of was taken out of the movie theaters, but that may have just been because it had its run. And uh, But it's actually very good. It's, uh, you know, it's a very, I, I don't know if you've seen the film, but it's, I mean, I definitely recommend yes.
1: it. I think particularly yeah. the lead.
3: Oh, Um, yeah, yeah. Who
1: plays Kira. Right.
3: Uh, Valik, who later went on to be in The Third Man and a number of other uh, very high-profile films. And Rossano Brazzi also as as Leo. So, uh, yeah, I mean, my my only quibble with the Italian film is that um, Andre in the Italian film is much older. So it sort of gives the dynamic a whole different flavor because now it's sort of the young and handsome lover versus the really mature and kind of serious older guy, whereas here it's in the novel. I, I think it's very clear that they're all all three of them are about the same age. Right. So you know, they're, uh, they're one no of the things
2: that, one of the things I do think is done extremely well in the novel um is the the very complicated relationships among the three of those oh, right yeah, and yeah. i gather from some of the reading that i did that ran sort of started with the scene where um andre comes to arrest leo and discovers um that curious is oh, mistress right okay. and that's right. that was where she began with the book and then she sort of built the book out in that. both directions right, from that right. right and and that that's a that's a lovely kind of dramatic core that we see running through all kinds uh-huh. of you know yeah. literature through the ages, and so it, it, very, it hits at something really visceral in people. But the other thing I like is even, you know, even Kira, who's meant to be our hero, less so. I, I think the the. Um, the play, and this is in no way a critique of the the, the actors assuming that were absolutely wonderful, right? Oh, but yeah, just yeah. because of the speed with which you right, have to move right, in a play course, rather yeah. than the, the the slower pace you can use in a novel. Um, I think in the novel, um, we get a much more complicated portrayal of right. Kira. She's oh, much yeah. less yeah. simply admirable, right? And the her both Leo and Andre are are less sort of purely good or purely evil, right? right. They all have... Very good things about them, and they all have absolutely, really sort of despi- despicable um, aspects to their personalities right. in a, in a lot of ways, or at least things that are maybe not despicable but alienating. Right. Um, things that I think make a reader pull pull back from them um, mm-hmm. and and question them. And I think that's, that's really awesome. important. I think that's part of the that's part of why you know Caleb recommends this novel to people, and why Kathy likes it best yeah. of Rand's yeah. novels, as well as that it feels the the characters feel richer because we're used to not finding anybody to be strictly one thing or another.
3: Right, right. And the thing that I also find actually really interesting about this novel, and I think Rand actually mentioned this in discussing her, uh, her conception of it, that she was interested in taking this sort of idea of the triangle in which the woman is Kind of compelled to give herself to another man to save the man mm-hmm. that she loves, uh, you know, a la Tosca. Yeah. But it, where in Tosca, the man who, you know, the man that she, you know, gives herself to in order to save her lover is completely evil in this. Right sort of predatory rapist basically who is completely despicable. In this novel, he actually loves her and you know, he is in some ways more admirable in the end. You know, in the end, in some ways I think he is sort of more heroic than Leo, who ends up kind of being corrupted by she the has situation. Deep feelings for him and she has very a deep feelings for him. That, so I think, I think
1: that's very
3: original. Yeah. That's and it's, uh, it's yeah. very
1: Ayn Rand in that all the novels and i think this is part of their great appeal all in all the novels the essential conflict is between essentially good or at least in the fountainhead right. a mixed case right. so the conflict is not driven by evil people it's driven by good people um and that that's what i mean that's her whole world view in the end that that right. is who moves the world and it but it's it's very rare i think to get mm-hmm. real conflict where it's good people who are in conflict and that i Definitely in *We the Living*, but it's in yeah. *The Fountainhead* and *Atlas Shrugged*.
3: Right. No, I think that's uh, that, that's a very very strong part of uh, of this novel. I think that the uh, I mean, the, the, obviously there are other characters in *We the Living* who are sure. pretty Sonya. thoroughly Sonya. despicable, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, but but it's, that's an interesting point that they don't really drive the action. The the, the protagonists are really all. Uh, in one way or another, admirable
0: people. So. Well, let me throw this chum into the water then. <laughs> uh, if uh, if several of us can agree that this is her best novel, does that mean that the didactic portion is what makes the other ones at at times difficult to take? Uh, uh, would you
3: want me to start? Uh, yeah, feel sure. free. No. It's oh, just chum. No, I uh, I. Uh... I definitely agree with that. And, you know, I I do understand the point uh, that, you know, the the, the ideas that she was articulating um, are, you know, new and kind of radically new in some ways. So, you know, they did need to be, you know, not just dramatized but sometimes openly spelled out. But, you know, with regard to Atlas Shrugged specifically, I kind of honestly have the feeling that, you know, she wasn't just sort of spelling them out. She was kind of hammering them in over and over and over again. And it's like, yeah, I got it already. You know, you've already said this like five times. I don't really need to hear it again, <laughs> you know? And I, I think in that sense, um, With a Living is much more compact. And it does have, uh, it certainly has ideas. I mean, Andre's speech, which we heard a little bit from in, uh, in this dramatization, I think certainly uh, does you know contain really all of the basic themes of uh, of uh, Rand's philosophy? I think uh, there's also another uh, scene that wasn't. I mean, I understand that they really had to kind of
2: you know skip yeah, sure. through a lot of things because I think I think uh, they yeah, were cutting scenes because, up until yeah. like five minutes before they walked out right. here tonight. Right, so. <laughs> right. But <laughs> but
3: yeah, there's also a great scene, a very kind of intense scene in which. Kira confronts Andre after Leo is arrested and you know when at first Andre thinks you know she's just you know a slut who was uh, you know sleeping around and you know sleeping with this guy for money or something and she basically tells him you know this is the position in which your state put me you know where you forced me into the situation where you know I, I really had no other choice yeah. and uh, and it's because of this oppressive you know machinery that you've created in which you know the life of the individual means nothing and and actually I think in Andre's speech before the party committee he sort of I think he repeats verbatim some of the things that she said to him which is you know, which is really interesting. So yeah, I mean, I think that there is definitely there are great passages and and there are, there are great conversations in in uh, with the living in which the ideas are presented uh, kind of upfront. Uh, but I think you know it's done it's done much more economically. And also, I think the other part of the didacticism is the tendency. To treat characters sort of solely as vehicles for ideas, and I think that's a problem for me in in *Atlas Shrugged* specifically. Uh, in uh, *In *With a Living*, you really have very, very three-dimensional characters. And you know, there, there obviously there are some characters who are sort of entirely bad, you know, like Pavel and Sonia. But then you have you know, you have Kira's parents who are sort of, you know, they're they're regular people who have some good things and some bad things about them, and they're sort of conformist, but at the same time, they have some good qualities, and you know there, there's lots of other characters. And uh, actually, one of the most interesting uh, characters uh, who, who was not part of this dramatization for me was this um, uh, girl named Marisha. I don't know if you remember her. Mm-hmm. She was the she's the kind of working class girl who initially appears as this very unpleasant person. She's sort of she barges into Kira and Leo's apartment, and you know she's she's got an order for. The spare room that they have, where, where, where you know she's moved in, and this is of course what they actually had. They had these apartments where, you know, the, I mean, my, my mother grew up with like three families sharing one apartment and sharing the same bathroom. This is how people lived. Um, and anyway, so yeah, she, she starts out as this really unpleasant, kind of obnoxious uh, person who, uh, you know, is just presented well—not a villain, maybe, because she's really not kind of big enough to be a villain, but you know, definitely not uh, n- not a good person. And later on, she actually becomes quite sympathetic. And, and I thought that was something that I think, uh, to me, you know, at least I think Rand kind of lost in later years when her philosophy kind of became sort of rigid to the point where there was a really sharp kind of division into, you know, good guys on this side, bad guys on that side, so.
2: And a minute, oh, sorry, go ahead,
3: okay.
1: Um, I don't think it's right to say either the Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged that she hits you over and over with the same point, but why do some people have that reaction? I think it's if you reject certain of the ideas then you feel like you're being hit over the head with the same point. But there, there, is, but there is a real, Atlas Shrugged has an incredibly complex development of the ideas. And what's portrayed in part one and part two and part three, part three philosophically is much more sophisticated than part one. There's, there's the same characters but a much deeper perspective on those characters, both the heroes and the villains. But if you reject certain of the premises, then it seems like it's over and over. And this is true of anything, and anything of philosophically challenging. So, for instance, if it takes something outside of literature, if you read Kant, it is enormously difficult to read Kant, and you can feel like he's telling you the same thing over and over. He is not. He has a complex philosophy, but it has a basic premise, that your mind creates the world. And if you reject that premise, then you're going to... He's telling me again the mind creates the world. He's telling me again the mind creates mm. the world. And But that's because you're rejecting it. But if you take the idea seriously and you're trying to understand the philosophy, you see a complex development in Kant. And it's the same in Rand. But you have to be able to t- make that philosophical step, even if you don't agree mm. with the ideas, to get what their development is. And it's a complex development.
2: Yeah, I mean, and I think that this is... This kind of puts the... It puts the finger on on what I see as as being the the trouble with didactic fiction, regardless of who's writing it, regardless of what side of the political spectrum it comes from. Uh, For me, what it does is it asks um, a sailboat to be a truck, or it's asking a thing, a novel, to be a machine that does something that a novel Mm -hmm. isn't ideally suited to doing, right? Um, You can do it. I mean, obviously, Rand does it. Rand does it as well as anybody can do it. Um, Right. Uh, Rand and Steinbeck probably do it better than anybody else ever has. It m- may be better than anybody ever will. But both of them have a lot of people who just get their backs up when, when talking about them. I happen to sort of be equally, find them equally problematic, which I guess puts me nicely in the middle of the stage here uh, <laughs> this evening, right? Because I think that what happens when they are at their most didactic, right? Is that the, the the need to convey the idea, the need to explore the philosophy overcomes the need to tell the story, right? And for me at least, what I want a novel to do, what I want a piece of fiction to do is make me say what happens next, right? Not What's the next? Uh, what's next uh, turn we can make a, in this in this philosophical argument? If I want that, I'm happy to read philosophy, right? But when I'm reading a novel, I want to know what happens to those people next, right? I want to know if Kira ever gets out of there, mm-hmm. right? And if I don't want to know that, and if I don't care about that, I'm not going to finish the book, right? And I think that I think that what happens with I think the reason that so many people love Rand. Um, is because they love the philosophical argumentation and it's neat to have it and it's, and it's awesome and cool to have it wrapped up in a story, right? And I, I think, think that people who exactly don't like Rand want to be in it for the story and they get, there's not enough of I gotta know what happens next. I think I gotta the
1: know, reason it but. has millions of readers is that most people are passionate about the story and exactly for that reason they want to know what happens next to the characters and a lot don't get the full philosophical meaning of it but they get I mean, Alice Shrugged is a mystery story. And it is, I mean, a character doesn't appear until the third act. Um, I mean, it's a real mystery, and I think that's what drives people. And I would not put, I think didactic is, a more neutral term is philosophical. To say philosophical fiction or philosophical literature. And then there's a question of whether it is actually didactic or not. And I think you can have philosophical literature. You can have you can have plays that deal with ideas and yet it's not, it's not, you don't feel like you're in a classroom. And I think that's what you get with Rand. So I would it's definitely philosophical. It's heavily philosophical, but I don't think it's didactic.
2: Yeah, I mean I think we probably have a, a IS we both have kind of like a, a scale. For how much philosophy and right. how much how much plot we want in our novels, and I think your 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 tipping point is further towards the philosophy side, and my tipping point is further towards well, the, I want the I two mean, integrated yeah. right it's right. but I want I want like more plot and you want more philosophy, which is fine, right. as my grandmother would say, that's what makes a horse race, right? That's why there's a <laughs> lot of books in the race. bookstore, right oh, yeah. so um, but I, I I think that that's kind of the central like the central thing that people, it's what we argue about when we argue about Rand, right? (laughs) Yeah.
3: Yeah, I would add that, you know, I think with A Living and The Fountainhead also, I think, both of those, I think you can enjoy even if you don't agree with the ideas, really, not at least, you know, not 100%. I mean, I know a number of people who, you know who've read both these novels and you know really enjoyed them despite not really being quite you know on board with a lot of the yeah. ideas i don't i'm not really sure you can do the same with atlas shrugged but you know that's uh, i'm actually planning to reread it soon so you know i'm we'll see what happens maybe yeah. i'll uh, have a different perspective this time
0: i will close with this you've all seen ratatouille right um, and The Incredibles. And The Incredibles. Yeah. Incredibles 2, 2018. Oh. Okay. Um, oh. Mm-hmm. So on, next
3: time we should do a panel on Lin Ratatouille.
0: Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I'm very open to it. Um, there is that, there, there, it is clearly a Fountainhead story,
3: hmm. right? I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's fascinating.
0: Uh, no question in my mind, at least. Um, so would Ayn Rand like that movie?
2: It might depend on how she feels about rats in the kitchen. I couldn't watch it. There's rats in the kitchen.
0: Rejecting the collectivism of his family
2: and embracing
0: his role as the greatest chef in France. There's
2: rats in the kitchen.
1: I can't. He washes his hands, hands, if that helps. I'm not going to speak for her. And her literary and aesthetic tastes are very interesting. I mean, she has a whole book, The Romantic Manifesto, where she talks about many of her favorites. And it's very interesting. It's not... Necessarily, the people either you would think she would like or she would dislike.
2: She loves that. Dashiell Hammett. Right?
1: Yeah, and she liked Mickey's so, Blaine uh, Mickey And yes. people made fun of her for that. So, she, but she has very definite reasons for what she likes about yeah. various artists and artworks. So, and it's a, it is a very personal
0: yeah.
1: reaction to something.
0: Please thank our panel.